Good morning. Let's worship our Lord this morning together. Lord, I lift your name on high. Lord, I love to sing your praises. I'm so glad you're in my life. I'm so glad you came to save us. You came from heaven to earth to show the way from the earth to the cross, my debt to pay, from the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky, Lord, I lift your name on high, Lord, I lift your name on high, Lord, I love to sing your praises, I'm so glad my life. I'm so glad you came to save us. You came from heaven to earth to show the way from the earth to the cross. My debt to pay from the cross to the grave. From the grave to the sky, Lord, I lift your name on high. Well, good morning and welcome. It's uh, good to gather together this morning. It's, it's great to see more and more folks able to come out and join us. And, and for those who are uh, watching from home, hopefully that you'll be blessed by our gathering this morning, even though... Uh, you're not near us. When Paul writes his letters, you may notice that as he begins his letters, he, he oftentimes will mention the importance of grace and mercy and peace. He hopes that for his audience, that they would have grace and mercy and peace. And you and I may find some grace and mercy and peace in this world, but the truth is we will really never find, never find true grace and mercy and peace outside of Jesus Christ. There's really no grace, mercy, or peace outside of him. And so as we gather this morning and as we think about why we're here, it should motivate us in our worship, realizing that we're gathering this morning being reminded that our grace and mercy and peace come from Jesus Christ. For the next just little bit, I want you to think about your need for grace and mercy and peace. Reflect upon your need. And let's pray together. Father, we've gathered together reflecting upon a lot of different things and and realizing our need, especially for grace and mercy and peace. And Father, this morning we praise you that it is made abundantly clear that there is no other place to turn for grace and mercy and peace than Jesus Christ. And we're thankful that we have the opportunity to have that through him. And so, Father, as we gather this morning, may may we be reminded of that truth, and may our praise uh, fill uh, each other, but also bless you as we've gathered in worship this morning. We pray through Jesus. Amen. I will sing the wondrous story of the Christ who died for me, how he left his home in glory for the cross of Calvary. Yes, I'll sing the wondrous story of the Christ who 
for me. Sing it with the saints in glory, gathered by the crystal sea. I was lost, but Jesus found me, found the sheep that went astray. Through his loving arms around me, drew me back into his way. Yes, I'll sing the wondrous story of the Christ who died for me. Sing it with the saints in glory, gathered by the crystal sea. He will keep me till the river rolls its waters at my feet, then he'll bear me Yes, I'll sing the wondrous story of the Christ who died for me. Sing it with the saints in glory gathered by the crystal sea. Above all powers, above all kings, above all nature and all created things, above all wisdom and all the ways of man, you were here before the world began. Above all kingdoms above all thrones above all wonders the world has ever known above all wealth and treasures of the earth there's no way to measure what you're worth Lay behind the stone You live to die Rejected and alone Like a rose Trampled on the ground You took the fall And thought of me Above all powers, above all kings, above all nature and all created things, above all wisdom and all the ways of man, you were here before the world began. Above all Above all thrones, above all wonders the world has ever known, above all wealth and treasures of the earth, there's no way to measure what you're worth. Crucified, lay You live to die, rejected and alone like a rose, trampled on the ground. You took the fall and thought of me above all, crucified, lay behind the stone. Rejected and alone like a rose.
trampled on the ground you took the fall and thought of me above all hi brothers and sisters Bob Logan here with today's scripture reading. I'll be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. We've got two, so hang tight. First in Ezra, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, the Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia, so that he sent a herald throughout all his kingdom, and also in a written edict. Declared. Thus says King Cyrus of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judea. Any of those among you who are of his people, may their God be with them, are now permitted to go up to Jerusalem in Judea and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let all survivors, in whatever place they reside, be assisted by the people of their place with silver and gold, with goods and with animals, besides free will offerings for the house of God in Jerusalem. And then in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital. One of my brothers, Hananiah, came with a certain man from Judea, and I asked them about the Jews that survived, those who had escaped the captivity, and about Jerusalem. They replied, the survivors there in the province who escaped captivity are in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. May the Lord bless the reading of this scripture. Blessings to all. Good morning. We are, uh, as Bob has read for us, looking at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And I call them books because in your Bible, they are two separate books. Uh, something I had not realized. I don't know how I had missed this for years. Originally, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah were a singular work. Uh, within the Hebrew scriptures, they are addressed as one book. Uh, and it might be appropriate for us to look at these two, not as two books about two different people living in two different times, because they are not two books about two people living in two different times. They are a, re a book of the return. They are a book of the rebuilding, the reconstructing, uh, reclaiming, they are books about reforming. Uh, these are the rebooks. It's, uh, it's really kind of an interesting section in Scripture. Uh, of course, if you read through the Old Testament, you encounter these two books very early in the Old Testament, and there's a lot that comes after. Uh, if you read the book of Chronicles, you see that a lot of the history of Israel is laid out essentially leading up to these two books. And so it can be confusing at times because they come so early in the Old Testament to figure out how they fit into the grand story that's being told in the Old Testament. But if you read them right after you read the book of Chronicles, it makes perfect sense. Uh, this is why I advocate for uh, straight through reading sometimes. You, you start seeing things in ways you might not see them otherwise. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah, as I said, are about a return. They are about three returns, as a matter of fact. You see, the Israelite people specifically those who have been previously in positions of authority, are carried away from Jerusalem. They are, they are taken away from Israel in general, and they are taken back into captivity. Uh, they're all given new names. They are expected to live in a new place under new conditions. Uh, we talked a little bit about this exile that happens about this time last year, uh, almost exactly this time last year. We discussed this this whole finding yourself in a new place and a new situation. And so I think it's appropriate now, a year later, we're looking at their return. And some of these individuals return with a faint memory 
of what it was like to have lived in Jerusalem before. Very faint memory. It's been, it's been a long time. But they've heard the stories. They've sung the songs. Their, their grandparents told them what it was like to be an Israelite living in Israel. They've heard the words of prophets that promised a return, a time when a Messiah would set up a new kingdom, a holy place, a, a temple for people to come and worship, and not just the Israelite people, all people of all nations, that there would be a reform, a return, a call back to who God had intended for not just Israel to be, but in fact, all of humanity. And so when we read about Ezra and Nehemiah, when we read about the people of their own time, these are a people who have been longing for and anticipating a return to things that in some cases are just a faint memory. Things that linger in their heart, but maybe they don't even really know exactly how to articulate what they're looking for. There are two major construction projects that happen in these books, and I want to look at the first one first. Uh, this, is, this is the story of the rebuilding of the temple. And in Ezra chapter 3, verse 8, it says, Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, because this is later than their actual arrival, there, there's a moment earlier in the book where they begin to clear space to build the temple. And it gets interrupted. People are unhappy with the fact that they're wanting to build and do things that maybe they, you know, they're not comfortable with. They actually begin the rebuilding process here. In the second year, after they're coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, and Jeshua, or Yeshua, the son of Josedek, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. This is, in a lot of ways, it calls back to the construction of the tabernacle. It calls back to the construction of Solomon's temple. Uh, there's this gathering of resources, the finding of the craftsmen who will build the implements of worship. And they've, they've built an altar. They, they build a place to be able to come and offer sacrifice. They build the beginning stages of the temple. And they build the temple in what is genuinely a remarkable length of time. It takes them significantly less time to build the temple than it takes for Solomon to build the initial temple. And of course, they're starting on the literal foundation that Solomon had laid. In Ezra chapter 6, we read this, Then according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tetanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, uh, this is a letter, as a matter of fact, that's being written as an account of the things that are happening in Israel. So when we talk about the province beyond the river, we're actually talking about Canaan. We're talking about the promised land. And so it's sent back to uh, account for the things that have happened. Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar, Bozani, and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. They finished their buildings by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adair in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And so we see that they set out. There is a, a decree given by Cyrus. Cyrus, interestingly, is the only Gentile or foreign king to ever be given the word name anointed one. In the Bible, when you read through the Bible, you, you'll notice that Cyrus is called the anointed one. In other words, God has given him a purpose and a plan, something to do. He's placed it on him and anointed him to do the thing. Now, the interesting thing about it is that Cyrus was also uh, adopting a whole lot of other titles that were appropriate for the regions that he had conquered. And so it's not particularly surprising that he would also adopt the term that was used to describe David or Solomon or Saul or any of the children that followed after David as kings of Israel. But it's interesting because the authors of Scripture still choose to call him the anointed one. He sends the Israelites back. He says, God has placed it on my heart for you to build a temple in Jerusalem where you can worship your God. Go back. Build the temple. And they arrive there, and, and uh, the people who are still there are not particularly happy about this, specifically the non-Jewish people who have taken up residence in Jerusalem. And they say, no, you can't build this temple. This is wrong. You know, you're rebelling against the king, and, well, the king told us to do this. And they squash the, the rebellion 
these Canaanite individuals living in Jerusalem, and they say, you're not going to build the temple. So a period of time passes, and then, and then the next king rises up, and he issues the decree. No, I've found that this is, in fact, what Cyrus told them to do. They're going to build the temple. And so he sends it back, and the message arrives, and they build the temple. And there are a bunch of Israelites who never left Israel who want to join in the process of building this temple. They're enthusiastic about it. You, you're going to build the house of God. Let us join with you. And I don't know that this is recorded as a positive thing. But these individuals who are there to build the temple, who have been sent back by Cyrus, who have been given permission by Darius to build the temple, say, no, you'll have no part in this. They kind of lift their noses at them. They wag their fingers and they build the temple without them. It's kind of a a little bit of a dark turn in the story. But they build the temple. There's a celebration. There's a consecration. They offer sacrifices. Uh, They bring in the appropriate grains and the the implements of worship. They have the oil for the lamps. Everything looks really good. And then something doesn't happen that everyone was sort of expecting to happen. Because these, these Jews, they're good students of history. They remember when Solomon consecrated the temple, the cloud of God descended on it. And God took up residence among his people. God doesn't do that at the end of this building of the temple. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't continue to go to the temple and offer sacrifices and worship. That's something that they continue to do. But for one strange reason or another, God just doesn't act in the way that they expected him to act. But there are still building projects left to do. You see, the the thing is, just because the temple's built doesn't mean that the rest of Jerusalem is built. And so, uh, in a third wave of individuals to return to Jerusalem, a man named Nehemiah is sent back to oversee these new returns. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in now. You see, Nehemiah, who's come back for building projects, he... He goes by night around the city of Jerusalem to inspect the wall because any good city at the time to protect the people inside of it had a wall. Then I said to them, he says, as he's looking around, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. And I, like, imagine a 1980s montage scene where they're, like, all lifting weights and they're running and we're ready to build a wall now. You know, they strengthen themselves. They fortify themselves. And some of that's true. They're literally going to have to be construction workers and warriors Side by side. In fact, as you read through the book of Nehemiah, you see that these guys don't ever go home. They go just on the other side of the wall at night to sleep. They don't take off their clothes even. They're they're like spears are in their hands as they're resting so that they can get up and go work in the morning. But if someone comes in the middle of the night to attack them before their wall is built, they're prepared to fight. Because you see, when they get back to the promised land, as I said before, there's a bunch of Canaanites there. Moabites and Ammonites and all these people that are foreigners, and they've, they've taken advantage of the opportunity that Jerusalem is wide open. Let's go ahead and we'll take some of the homes that are still left standing. We'll stay in Jerusalem. Yeah, there are some Jews there that we'd rather not associate with, but that's okay. You know, they're the poor ones anyway. We can kind of rule over them. Well, when Darius and Cyrus and Artaxerxes send people back, this is kind of inconvenient for the people that are already occupying Jerusalem But they drive them out, and they start rebuilding their wall, and the Ammonites don't forget that they had that city for a pretty good long time before Nehemiah and his little construction project. So the whole time that they're rebuilding the wall, there are these starts and stops and starts and stops, and then finally there is a moment where, as I said, they put on their armor and they become construction worker warriors, one in one. They are the same thing. 
And they build the wall over the course of 52 days. It's a, a remarkable feat of engineering. If you, if you look at pictures of Jerusalem, you can see to this day where that wall existed and in some cases still exists. Now it has been refortified and reinforced in many cases. But you can see where the wall is. And it's a tremendous feat of engineering to have more or less accomplished in a, a month and a half. It's pretty impressive. And in Nehemiah chapter 6, we read this. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own, uh, in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished by the help of our God. So now they are a people with a temple. And there are people with a wall. And life should be good, right? Things have been rebuilt The people have returned from afar, and things should be good. But there's still no cloud of the Lord on the temple. There's another moment of reform, reconstruction, rebuilding that happens in Nehemiah chapter 8, where Nehemiah gets a little bossy with Ezra. He says, and all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. This is Nehemiah telling Ezra, you're going to read the law to the people. This is your job. You're going to read it to them. They will know this law. So Ezra the priest brought the law before people or before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the 17th month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And at the end of this little section of scripture, it actually says that they were given the sense of the law. Not just the law itself, not the word-for-word reading of it, but like what it really meant. And all the people hear it. And it, in some ways, calls back to a moment where Josiah had found the scroll of the law, and he reads it to all the people, and they all stand and listen as he reads the law. Here, they all stand and listen. And you expect this moment of great reform and return to who it was that they were before they had ever left Israel. And you're like, if there's ever going to be a moment where the cloud of God is going to settle on the temple, it's at the end of the book of the law, right? As they read through the covenant and they read the story of how God delivered them. Because when we talk about the book of the law, we're not just talking about Leviticus. We're talking about the whole story of Israel. Those first five books, those are the books of the law. It is the story of the identity of an entire people, a covenant between God and a family and how he will use them and glorify them so that the nations around them might be glorified, that they might see God and praise him and all long to come to the temple. And they're reading this law and they're hearing the words of the prophets echoing in their head about how God will bring a redeemer to Israel, an anointed one who will rise up and all the nations will praise God as one. And they've got to be getting close to the end of that book of the law and thinking, this is it. This is the moment that the cloud is going to settle on the temple. This is it. God will take up residence among his people. It's going to be fantastic and fascinating and extraordinary. What a time to be alive. And they get to the end of the book of the law and it doesn't happen. The cloud doesn't settle on the temple. There's this moment of disappointment, I'd imagine. And for a period of time, the Israelite people kind of, they do the right thing. They go to the temple for their worship time. Nehemiah has called them into reform for the ways that they have previously treated the poor, and now they start treating the poor better. A lot of the individuals who had intermarried with the Canaanites they are called to, uh, to put away their wives, which sounds very strange to us, but this is, this is a moment of purification of the people of Israel. Because if they're not purified, how in the world will the world see them as a light to the nations? They follow the commandments more or less. And then we get to 
what is perhaps the most discouraging chapter in this singular work. Chapter 13. And Nehemiah, this radical reformer, this man who has been given a mission to go and rebuild the city of Jerusalem, both by God and by the king that God has kind of placed over the Israelite people. He may not be an Israelite himself, but he's given authority and the the ability to encourage and instruct Nehemiah and the Israelite people to rebuild. Nehemiah walks the city of Jerusalem, and everywhere he turns, the people have given up on what it is that God has called them to. Outside of the city, they're, they're selling on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, they bring their wares into the city and sell. The temple has essentially become a place for money lenders and for uh, the sale of goods. In fact, in many ways, at the end of Nehemiah, we see the temple as Jesus would have seen it on the day that he goes in and drives out the money changers with a whip. He notices that All of the priests have intermarried with the women of the land. He notices that people have forgotten the book of the law. He finds himself deeply discouraged. Finds himself enraged at times. It talks about him like going and ripping out the hair of people who have committed sin against God. He's he's like a radical, radical man, furious at the fact that the people of Israel have given up on the reform that God has called them to. And I don't know if we're supposed to feel an extreme amount of empathy for Nehemiah, an extreme amount of empathy for the people of Israel who are disappointed by the fact that the clouds never returned, or if we're just supposed to find ourselves wanting what comes next. Take that back. I know what we're supposed to find at the end of the book of Nehemiah. We're supposed to experience the longing that literally every person in this story has experienced to some extent or another. A recognition that even when the rebuilding happens, even when people hear and affirm the good news of the law, we still want God with us. Chronologically, this is one of the last events in the Old Testament. There's, there's one prophet that comes after. This is Malachi. Malachi who rounds out the end of our Old Testament. Malachi comes and he starts talking about, you know, you've all fallen into these, these patterns of disappointment. You've fallen into being something other than God had called you to be. And you're, you're rampantly divorcing your wives. The priests are living in sin. They're taking up the, the wrong kind of offerings. They're hoarding it for themselves. You've forgotten to be the people that God has called you to be. But our hope was never in this temple or in a wall built around our city. Our hope still lies out there. The end of the book of Nehemiah reminds us that sometimes we think if we just build the right thing back again, if we just fall into the same patterns that we were in before and maybe improve them just a little bit, then everything will be better. But there are so many ways in which the Israelite people make progress in one direction and completely miss the point in the other direction. See, I think, I think when we see these reformers, these rebuilders coming back, and they, they build, but they don't include the people who were right there the whole time, who never left, who weren't carried away into exile. I think one of the things that God is telling us in the book of Nehemiah is this. It doesn't matter if you rebuild it, if you don't take care and invite others into the process. 
See, these, these same Israelites, I, I don't, the book doesn't tell us whether or not it's a good thing that these returners have told the Israelites who wanted to help build the temple, you have no part in this. It doesn't tell us whether or not we're supposed to be on the side of one or the other, but I think one of the messages here is that this was not an inclusion of all of God's people in the process. This was an inclusion only of those who returned, who had previously been the rulers of Israel, the the individuals of note and stature. And one of the reasons that they were carried off in the first place was because they had failed to take care of those who were underneath them as far as society was concerned. And they were to be taught by their captors how to care for the poor, how to care for the people underneath them. This is actually God's message to the people as he is seeing them carried out of Jerusalem. You will learn mercy and justice in captivity. And they come back. And on the one hand, it's great that they drive away the Canaanites who could potentially prevent them from doing the thing that God has called them to do. But they also rebuke and shun those who are their own brothers and sisters who have never left who were, in many ways, incapable of rebuilding Jerusalem without them. Maybe even prevented from doing it up until Cyrus's decree. I think that the message of the book of Ezra and Nehemiah for us is this. We are going through the opportunity to rebuild. And there are some things that we're going to want to reclaim, and we're going to want to reclaim them fast, like, less than 52 days if we can. There are projects that we want to undertake. There are things that we want to bring back. There are, there are things that we would like to see happen very soon. And some of those things might only take 52 days. Some of them, on the other hand, might take as long as the temple, four years and three months, right? It could take us some time to build back the things we want to build. If some things take a while, that's okay. If some things happen quickly, that's all right too. But here's the problem. If we build back... To what we were before we left. And we failed to learn the message that God had for us in our time apart. We might find ourselves greatly disappointed by what we build. I don't know about you, but I want our congregation to experience the presence of God among us in the work that we do, in the ways that we bless our community, in the ways that we encourage our neighbors in the ways that we encourage the people who are a part of our own body, who maybe have felt disenfranchised or on the outside by whatever it is that's been going on. If we don't build back with the intention of building right and building in a way that blesses everyone we come into contact with, we will be disappointed by what we build back. And so I want to encourage us this morning to be radical reformers like Ezra and Nehemiah. To be the kind of people who are super excited about what God is doing among his people. Who see the projects that can be undertaken in order to live out God's purpose and mission for our lives. But I also want us to recognize that it's not just about projects. It's about people. That is what we are rebuilding for. As we regroup as the Newburgh Church of Christ, as we find ourselves in community with one another on a more regular basis, and I think that that's wonderful, and I don't want to discourage that, it's also important for us to not become insular in our rebuilding. We're going to spend a lot of time and energy doing new things for our congregation. In fact, I'm going to tell you about two of those things here in just a moment. But I also want us to remember that we need to build back to do things for the community so that we become a light to our world. Because Israel failed to do that when they came back and rebuilt. They thought it was enough to have a temple and a wall, to know the book inside and out. But they'd lost a heart for their own people and for the people who lived outside of that wall. And we do not want to find ourselves there. So, with that said, I want to talk about two building projects that we're doing right now that are, uh, they're about us. 
and hopefully soon we're going to be talking about some building projects that are for them. The first building project I want to talk about is a small group that we're putting together. Uh, it starts today. Um, Michael Rooney and I are going to be doing a small group that is entirely focused on worship. Uh, it is our, we're calling it our Harmony Small Group. There are, uh, our, our first meeting, as I said, is today at 2 o'clock. We think it's going to be an hour, but I've put up a half-hour buffer here uh, just in case because I can be long-winded, and sometimes we get exuberant in our worship, and so we want that buffer zone. Um, we're going to sing songs. We're going to talk about what the songs mean to us. We're going to talk about uh, our worship as a congregation and what it means to be together. If you want to be a part of this small group just because you want to be together to worship, join us at 2 o'clock. If you want to be in this small group in order to help uh, improve our congregational singing, we encourage you to do that as well. Uh, you may have noticed there have been a couple Sundays where we've had some folks on the front row who have been miked. That's mostly a benefit for the people who are a part of our live stream so that they can hear more than one part when we're worshiping together in the building. Uh, we're looking for people who are willing to hold a microphone to encourage and edify those who can't be here with us on Sunday morning. And so this will be an opportunity for that as well. Um, the other thing that we are currently working on is bringing back our children's worship time. Uh, it, uh, it's come to our attention that, you know, we, we have had a great difficulty in ministering to the children of our congregation over the last year. Uh, the restrictions that have been put in place have been hardest in many ways on them from a spiritual standpoint. Uh, there's not a lot that we've been able to do. Norma has done a fantastic job of having constant regular material for them, uh, for parents to be able to engage with. But as a congregation... Our ability to feed and nurture and encourage the souls of our children has been difficult. And we've talked about doing a class. We've talked about doing a worship time. The general feedback that Kyle and I have received as we've done some uh, surveying of the congregation is that a children's worship time during our regular service would be a beneficial sort of thing. And so we want to let you know that we are working on all of the details of that. We have a pretty good plan uh, to maintain safety, uh, but also to be able to facilitate uh, spiritual development for our children. And we're planning on starting that on the first Sunday of May. Uh, and so we want to let you know that that is our plan at this point. Uh, these are two things that we are doing that are projects, building projects for our congregation. And there are a lot of other projects going on right now. I want to encourage you to find yourself invested in the work of rebuilding. What, what we are doing right now for the congregation and for our community. Let's pray. Father, you are good, and your vision is so much bigger than our own. And you have called us back into fellowship, and we know that many of us have kept up the ties that bind us over the last year. We've had a lot of opportunity to do that, but we also know that we are so much more effective in our mission when we can all put our hands into the work. And sometimes just being together in person allows for that in ways that being apart simply does not. And so, Father, as we rebuild, help us to all find our hands committed to the work that we're doing. Help us to go through that, that montage of strengthening our hands so that we can be about the business you've given to us. But as we rebuild the things for the church, help us not to forget to rebuild the things for our community. Help us not to forget to be a light to the world, a light to the nations. Help us to build back, but help us to overcome those areas in which we were weak before. Help us to leave them behind. Help us to have learned lessons in the last year about what is important to you as our God, as our model for life, as the one who directs our footsteps. God, I thank you for faithful men like Ezra and Nehemiah who didn't always get it right, but tried, tried so hard to do what you called them to do. And I pray that, Father, like them, we can work where we have heard you call us and that we can dream big about the things that we can build and be involved in the building of and that we can commit ourselves to your word, but that we can also commit ourselves to your work. It's all this that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, if you have a need of the church, if you need prayer, if you need encouragement, if you need counsel, if you need the waters of baptism, 
we want to offer all of those opportunities to you. Uh, I will be at the back of the auditorium. Uh, one or two of our elders will be available if, you're, if you need to speak to one of them. We've got some ladies uh, who are in the back as well that if you, need, uh, if you need to talk to a lady, you just don't feel comfortable talking to a man about what you're struggling with. Uh, Amy Rockwell has volunteered to be back there. We've got a couple of others that would be willing to visit with you. But we want to support you and encourage you. We want to make sure that you are not one of those who has been here in Jerusalem the whole time and has not been brought back into the embrace of the body. So if you have a need of the church, I'd encourage you to find us uh, at the back of the auditorium. Let's go ahead and we'll stand and we'll sing. Jesus, you're my firm foundation. I know I can stand secure. Jesus, you're my firm foundation. I put my hope in your holy word. I put my hope in your holy word. I have a living hope. I have a future. God has a plan for me. Of this I'm sure, of this I'm sure, Jesus, you're my firm foundation. I know I can stand secure, oh, Jesus, you're my firm foundation. I put my hope in your holy word, I put my hope in your holy word, your word is faithful. Jesus, you're my firm foundation. I put my hope in your holy word. I put my hope in your holy word. You may be seated. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Born of his spirit, washed in his blood. This is my story, this is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Perfect submission, perfect delight. Visions of rapture now burst on my sight. Angels descending bring from above echoes of mercy whispers of love. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Perfect submission, at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed, watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his goodness, lost in his love. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. 
Love one another, for love is of God. He who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not. Verse one more time. Verse four, please. Here we go. Well, there we go. All right, here we go. Three. Love the Lord, thy God, with all thy heart, with all thy soul, all thy strength. All prepare our hearts and minds for the Lord's Supper this morning. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, early in the morning our song shall rise to Falling down before 
church family. Hope you've enjoyed this beautiful weather that we've had lately. Uh, it is right now beautiful and sunny outside. Uh, it's a great day to praise God. This morning I want to focus our minds on Abraham and how closely Abraham and Isaac were to God and Jesus. Genesis chapter 22. Sometime later God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two, two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. And the two of them went on together. Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father? Yes, my son. Abraham replied, the fire and wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld me, your son, your only son. One thing that I love about this is it took Abraham and Sarah so long uh, to have Isaac. And I know people have difficulties uh, with having children. And Abraham had a very hard time. Sarah was so old uh, that she laughed, and God punished her for laughing. Um, but Isaac came along, and Abraham was still willing to kill Isaac because the Lord asked him to. And that's how much Abraham loved his son and loved God. And God loved us so much that he actually went through with it, and he did sacrifice Jesus. Interesting, though, also that uh, Isaac, Abraham put the wood on Isaac just like the cross was put on Jesus and it was Jesus carrying the cross uh, for his death. Let's pray as we uh, think about the bread and give thanks for it. Our Father in heaven, God, we're so thankful for the bread, for Jesus, for life, and for our lives, Father, that we can give to you. Please help all of us right now to think about others before ourselves, to think about Jesus and his sacrifice and the love and uh, him going to the cross for us so we can have eternal life with you, God. We are so thankful uh, for sacrifice and that we don't have to go to an altar and bring goats and cows and everything that the children of Israel had to do, but your son did it all for us to make it easy and to give us eternal life. Please bless this bread. In your son's name we pray, amen.
Let's continue our prayer. Father God, we are so thankful for the fruit of the vine and for it being a remembrance so we can remember the sacrifice your son made for us. Lord, help us never to forget it. Help us always to remember his love and to share that love with others. Uh, Help us to be Abraham and to have faith and to be counted as righteous because of our faith. We love you so much, Lord. We are so thankful for the lives you've given each and every one of us here in the building and uh, worshiping afar. Everybody across the world right now, Father, who is partaking in communion, we, we pray that we do it with the same mind, with the same heart, and help us to be doing it in a worthy manner. Thank you for this fruit of the vine. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing song this morning. There is beyond the azure blue a God concealed from human sight. He tinted skies with heavenly hue and framed the worlds with his great mind. There is a from his inspired word. There is a God, he is alive, in him we live and we survive. From dust our Please be seated. Isn't it interesting to think that as we look at Scripture and how God has worked throughout history and his people, that in a lot of ways we're lining up in the same way. May we learn from not only history but primarily from Scripture and what God has called his people to. And Chris has challenged us that truth with us this morning. Let's pray. Father, may we respond 
to uh, your teaching, to uh, the history that we can learn from. May we learn and obey and serve as you've desired. May we have that kind of heart, one that would seek to be a, uh, a, your people, but also to be a presence in our land and to make a difference in folks' lives. Father, may we not seek to be a fortress. May we be open and willing to bless and make a difference in this world. Father, thank you for the chance to be together this morning. May you be blessed in all this, but may we also find a blessing as well. We pray through Jesus. Amen. You're dismissed.